Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 16th of March, Rebecca Whittlesey taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Rebecca looks at Acts chapters 1 to 8. Rebecca is on staff at City Hope Church in London and helps run her church's own theology school. Let's take a listen to the session. Okay, um, I, I lucked out here and got this great topic of Acts 1 to 8 and the Holy Spirit today in your, in your course and all the topics you're looking at. I was very happy to get this one. Very exciting part of the Bible. Anybody here say that Acts is their most favourite book in the Bible? I have some friends who would definitely say that Acts is their favourite book. It's full of action, it's full of conversion stories, it's full of Holy Spirit breaking out in power. They tend to be the evangelists among us who are like, yeah, we love Acts. It's a great book. And if you like, it's, um, um, you, we might call it like the fulcrum or the pivot of the, of the New Testament. So you've already looked at the Gospels in the last two sessions. Uh, Liam was here last month, wasn't he, doing the Synoptic Gospels. And then, of course, when we, the rest of the New Testament, lots of letters and instruction, teaching of the church about how to live how to understand our salvation. And in the Acts of the Apostles, if you like, we've got this, um, it's like a pivot point of how we get from one to the other. Um, I thought I was going to have a clicker, but I haven't got one, so I'm just going to have to rely on the young man. So there's a, this group of stuff here suddenly becomes the next slide, which, now did Liam show you pictures of his bread? I knew he would. I knew he would. Well, this is a cake. I didn't make it, but my 11-year-old son made it, so I, I can't really take the credit for that, but the point is, you see, there's a bunch of ingredients, and then we get this. There's this, and something happens to make this, which is a, a, a favourite thing of mine. And there's this, and then something happens to get this. For the purpose of the recording... I've shown a bunch of ingredients and a cake, a bunch of grapes and some wine. Jesus and the apostles, um, a reconstruction, not the original. And then an enormous church filled with people. And the thing that happens between Jesus and the apostles and an enormous church, worldwide church full of people, is, if you like, the Acts of the Apostles. So that's where we're going. Um, Some people have called it, have said it shouldn't really be called the Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. Um, they're the ones doing the stuff but anyway you get the point so what I'm going to do today is is try and work through eight chapters of Acts one by one because it's pretty hard just to present a summary uh, of the whole thing we're only going up to chapter eight next time you'll go further because it's a bit of a turning point in the story as you'll see So I'm going to try and go through one by one. Time is against us, I know. Um, I'll do my best. We will have to linger over some bits and inevitably skip over, therefore, some others. But you've got the notes. Hopefully, they'll be helpful. So, Luke, if you've got a Bible, do have it open uh, on your table. 
that would be helpful just to refer to bits and pieces as we go. Okay, so the book of Acts starts, it's written by Luke, who also wrote the gospel according to Luke, unsurprisingly. So he starts off uh, writing to his friend and he says, he refers back to the first thing he wrote, which is his gospel. And he says, I started, I wrote before about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So in Acts, what Luke is writing about is all that Jesus continues to do and teach. And which is, a, which is strange in a way because it starts, it, the very beginning of Acts starts with the ascension of Jesus. So we find out there's been 40 days since the resurrection of Jesus. He spent 40 days with the apostles appearing to others as well. And we have this ascension scene. And the ascension is one of those things, I, I don't know about where you come from, but in the church tradition that I come from, and I go to a church very much like Christchurch Manchester, a church in the Catalyst family of churches, and uh, we don't talk about the ascension very much, in my experience, and it's a bit of a bugbear of mine, because I, I spent, a, I'm doing a one-to-one alpha with a young woman in our church, and she's come along, and she's become a Christian, she's got very, she's very new, very baby Christian, fresh to the faith, very little understanding, which is exciting and thrilling, and I'm doing a one-to-one Alpha, it's not really Alpha, it's based on Alpha, with her, just talking her through things. And on the second time we met, she said, I have a question. I know Jesus rose from the dead, but then he died again. And uh, I just said, no, 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 this is so important. Jesus died, he rose, and he ascended. So important that we know the full package, without the ascension, without the glorified ascended Christ in the heavenly place without knowing that he's our high priest and that's where he is. The whole package is completed and sometimes we can talk about the cross and forget to mention the resurrection but I feel like we need to talk about the cross, the resurrection and the ascension as that full package of what Christ has done. So we see in chapter one the ascension. I don't know if anybody's ever seen a TV adaptations of this where they try and do this where Jesus just goes into the sky. There was a thing on TV called uh, AD, Kingdom and Empire. Anybody see that? A few, very few, okay. It's a reconstruction of the Acts of the Apostles, actually. So it's Peter and the Apostles and all the things that happen. It's, it's actually not bad. It, it, it's, shall we say, it's not entirely the gospel as we know it. There are definitely some, there's definitely some license in there. But anyway, they try and do this scene, which is crazy, because how you do that, I don't know. But Jesus is taken up. But before he is, he says to the apostles and and those gathered with him on the mount, he says, don't do anything, just wait. Just wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And when he comes, you will receive what? Power. Power to be my witnesses, Jesus says. You're going to receive power to be witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And in your notes, you've got a little table. And Acts 1, verse 8, that thing that Jesus says to his friends about power and about being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that verse rather neatly provides a a little model for the Acts of the Apostles and what happens in the ensuing book, ensuing 28 chapters. And so if you look at that table, you'll see, and it's self-explanatory, but power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, we see in Acts 1 to 6. 
that's what happens. Witnesses to, to, to witness in Jerusalem and people coming to Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2 on the Jews and that particular section of Acts ends with these words, the word of God spreads, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increase rapidly. Then we see from 6 to 9, Judea and Samaria. We, we read, we'll see this later, the Holy Spirit comes to the Samaritans and that section ends in chapter 931. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in number and that promise continues to the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, Jesus says. And then when you get to chapter 9 next time, you see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who as we know becomes known as the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And like a stone in a pool, these ripples just keep getting further and further and further as the witnesses to Christ take the gospel further and further. So that's a helpful little pattern there, if you like. Acts 1.8 sets the scene for what's about to come throughout the rest of the book as we see these ripples going out further and further and further. Until by the end of the book, we're looking at Rome, which is 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. That's how far we get through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And then, of course, what's important about Rome? What's, this, what's significant about the place, Rome, and the gospel getting there? People saying things, but I can't. Empire, exactly. So through the Roman Empire, the gospel then has the potential just to pump out across the known world. It's really exciting, isn't it? We're, we're, so we sort of get this beautiful little insight right at the beginning. Jesus says, you know, wait, wait, wait. There's power coming, and the result of that is going to be this extraordinary explosion of gospel truth throughout the whole world. And that's why we're here today, right? That's why we're here today. And some of us have come from Manchester, and some of us come from London, and some of you have come from much further flung places, I'm sure. Acts 1 sets the scene. I've skimmed over the bit in Acts 1 where they have to replace Judas, but um, that happens as well. Uh, Judas, they, they decide they need a 12th apostle and they replace Judas. I will just quickly ask you, because I think this is interesting, the way they choose the replacement for Judas, the 12th apostle, is that there are criteria that they have, which are, he needs to have been with us throughout and witnessed all the things we've seen, and he needs to be a witness of the resurrection. So um, I don't know how many people were in that category. They, they whittle it down to two. And then the way they decide on the one is how. They, they gamble, yeah, they draw lots, they pick a straw or, or a stone or, or whatever. Um, which is interesting, isn't it? Have you ever thought that's an interesting way to make that decision? Why don't you just take one minute on your tables, just chat somebody and say, and just uh, try and work out whether or not that's something you might employ today making this decision uh, whether it's you know whether you're in a church context and you've got to choose pick a leader or whether you're thinking about decisions about other big things is this so they pray they say god lead our decision and then they draw lots just quickly just quickly have a little chat about that
Okay. All right, you've all, you've all, I'm sure you've all uh, decided what the answer is to this conundrum. Anybody like to share what, the, what they think, whether or not this is a good way to... Was it a question? Okay. Okay, so it, it was a common practice, yeah, um, amongst the Jews. In regards to the Wood today, it's the method used to determine who goes to Parliament in the case of a tie in a general election. <laughs> <laughs> we could really go down that rabbit warren today, couldn't we? <laughs> Do you know what? I think it's probably best that we don't. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yes, it was common practice in the Old Testament, um, and I think probably... <coughs> Today, having received the Holy Spirit, we would be looking to him, the spirit of counsel and wisdom, to guide our decisions. Um, but anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. Chapter 2. So a lot happens in chapter 2, Act chapter 2. It's uh, the story of Pentecost. So the disciples are doing just what they've been told. They're waiting. Now, Pentecost is... Um, it's not the name for the time when the Spirit is poured out, although it, it has become that. It's a, a Jewish festival, and that's why everyone's in town. Everyone's in Jerusalem for the fe Feast of Pentecost. It's a, bit, it's a harvest festival atmosphere. There's men from all over have come. There's no work. There's a real party atmosphere in, in the city. And the disciples are in a room, and they're waiting. And I can only imagine that they might still be pretty scared um, you know, and confused. Jesus is killed. It's all over. <laughs> Jesus is back. Celebration. Oh, he's gone again. Why? He's gone again. Um, they've watched him be arrested and crucified. I imagine there's quite a lot of confusion and fear, but they're doing what they've been told and they're waiting. They're in a room. Uh, and there they are. And uh, as I've put in the notes, we see a little echo there of the Last Supper together in a room. Jesus explaining about his passion, about what's going to come. And now they're there, not really knowing why, but they're there at the birth of this new spirit-born church. They're waiting. And what we read in the account of Pentecost, when the spirit comes on them, is various things. First of which is the sound of a mighty wind. Which There's quite a lot of wind around here today as well, but a mighty wind which again brings to mind Old Testament references of God's presence. So uh, just two that I've put in there, the, the, the wind that blows the Red Sea apart in that great deliverance of Israel. And when God passes by Elijah, 
And of course, what you may know already, but it's really, really helpful to remember this, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, wind is the same word as spirit and breath. Exactly the same word. And so when original readers of of the Bible, both in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament, that would have been very clear. It's the same word, wind of God, breath of God, spirit of God. They're all the same word in... um, in Hebrew, it's ruach, and in Greek, it's pneuma. So that's helpful, I think. Filled the house. He came and filled. It says the Spirit filled the house. So the Spirit in the Old Testament fills. The Spirit of God comes and fills the, the tabernacle and the temple. And tongues of fire. Uh, this is one I've always been fascinated by. Tongue, f- something like tongues of fire appear Fire in the Old Testament. We remember the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night. And also fire coming on a sacrifice. Remember the standoff between Elijah and Baal? The fire of God fell. And fire, even the burning bush. So many, so many things. Holiness, the awe, the presence of God is manifest in the fire. And the other thing we're told that happened, the other tongues are languages. And filled with the Spirit, they start to speak in languages they've not learned. What, what a crazy experience that must have been for them at that time. Just imagine, this is such a, an extraordinary thing that's happening. They're just suddenly speaking in languages they've not learned. And we know they're earthly languages because people around them hear them and are amazed. It says they're amazed. They're speaking in languages we understand. So that's the what of Pentecost, if you like. And then the next slide is the why of Pentecost, just if uh, so, this is good. they're going to come up one by one, and I'm going to refer to them. They were filled. So you've probably heard this before, but this is a really important point. The church is the eschatological temple. The church is now the place where the Spirit of God lives, where God chooses to live on the earth. And there's a temple theme, isn't there, through the whole of the Bible, right from the Garden of Eden, where God communes with people where his presence is, all the way through the Bible we see this temple theme where God and man meet, where heaven and earth intersect. Which is why in Revelation John says uh, there's no need for temple because God's presence will fill the renewed creation. Amen? So the church becomes the temple. God comes and meets his people in that way. They spoke with other languages. It's almost a sign that here we are from Israel suddenly we understand, I don't suppose the apostles understood this yet, that the whole earth, all nations, all languages, all tribes and tongues will come into this new kingdom, into this new spirit-born community. They receive power, just like Jesus said they would, and immediately we read of powerful outcomes. You know, this is not, um, this is not really to be expected, I would have thought of these people. You know, in the way they're feeling and what's happened to them. And yet suddenly they're on the streets performing signs and wonders. There's miraculous healings and there's bold preaching, which results in crazy mass conversions. People falling to their knees in hundreds and thousands. Power. And it heralds a new age as well. You remember the prophet Joel who prophesied that God's spirit one day would be poured out on all flesh. 
not just leaders, not just individuals anointed for a certain task for a certain time, but all flesh, men, women, sons, daughters, servants, everyone. Regardless, God's spirit would be poured out. It's a new age and a new community. This is really important. The spirit of God is poured out and it's the beginning of this spirit-born new community of people that is unlike any other, unlike anything else the world has ever seen. Not just Israel, but a holy people, a people for God who are from every nation and every language and every tribe. I'd love us to keep stopping and talking about things, but I know I've got to keep moving. So, um, yeah, let's move on. <coughs> Quick, very quickly, Peter then, immediately after this has happened, it seems, we don't really know how immediate it is, obviously, we get the highlights written down by Luke. He goes out and he preaches a sermon. Peter's Pentecost sermon is very famous. If you preach... And if you want to preach the gospel in a way that invites sinners to repent and people to meet with Jesus, you could do a lot worse than looking at Peter's Pentecost sermon. Very quickly in your notes, it says he gives the facts. This is what has happened. This is the life and passion of Jesus. He refers back because these people, he's Jewish, remember, and everyone who's listening to him at this point is Jewish. He says there were Old Testament promises of a hope of a Davidic king. There would be a king in David's line who would be the answer, who would be the anointed one, the Messiah. It wasn't David, he says, but look, it's Jesus. He is the Christ. He fulfills all the promises. He then says, we've seen the ascension. We've witnessed what has happened. We've received the Spirit. Now you see what's going on. Don't you see? Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. And he invites people to respond and be baptised and a lot of people it seems respond, receive Christ and are baptised there and then now you can model your sermon on that Let, and just pray that God models the response on it, that, you know he just he meets with people and pours out his spirit, draws people to himself who, who, who has the opportunity to preach here in any context or, or teach or handful of people. Great, it's a huge privilege, isn't it? It's a huge privilege to bring the word and uh, yeah, point people to Jesus. The thing about Peter's preaching is it's whatever's happened, whether it's a miracle or you know an exchange with leaders later, it just always is pointing to Jesus. It's always making much of Jesus. It's just a great reminder for us just to keep doing that. And then what we're introduced to at the end of Acts 2, and I've heard a lot of sermons on this, and you may have done, is this new spirit-filled community, what it's like from, uh, from Acts 2, 42. Just a few things that this church, this new community is like. They are devoted, it says, to teaching. They're hanging on every word of the apostles. As they unpack the Old Testament scriptures, as they explain what, what Jesus has done and why it's important, they're hanging on every word. They're devoted to the teaching. They're devoted to one another. Again, that the Spirit unites us. He brings together all sorts of people. The wonderful thing about the Church of Jesus Christ, in, in my heart and I'm sure in yours, is diversity. It's this wonderful bringing together. Challenging at times, but just so precious. Um, and God's plan for the Church. Devoted to one another. Devoted to breaking bread. It says, and, and uh, it, it talks about people going from house to house, sharing food gladly. But also breaking bread alludes to the sacrament that Jesus 
has left for the church to keep remembering him, keep remembering him and keep looking forward to them when he comes again. They're breaking bread. They're devoted to prayer. When we see what happens to them a little bit later on, you're not surprised that they're praying a lot. <laughs> Things get pretty sticky. But they're devoted to prayer. They're devoted to keeping their hearts towards God. I've put rev- they're devoted to reverential fear. That seems like a funny thing to be re- devoted to. Reverential fear was something that characterised the community, we're told. And that's an interesting one we could unpack all day. But. And then marks of this new church, things that characterise it. We've got signs and wonders. Wouldn't you love to see a bit more of that? Amen. Power. We see it immediately. Marks of this new community, signs and wonders. Great power. They're sharing everything. So people weren't in need because they just had things in common. If somebody needed something, somebody else would take care of it. I don't think it was necessarily everyone coming to Peter and saying, Peter, they need a hand with that. It's just community, sharing everything. Somebody sees a need, they fill it. It's a beautiful thing. They're joyful and thankful, it says. Full of joy, full of thanks. That's a mark of the church. And they enjoy favour or goodwill with all the people. And that's an interesting one as well. That doesn't always feel like the case for us as the community of God. Sometimes it's tough uh, to deal with the people around us and the world and particularly the systems around us in today's world. And they saw, and this is a great mark of the church, daily conversions, people added, people convicted, people coming to know Christ, people falling on their knees and seeing, having their eyes opened. Jews who understood the Hebrew scriptures, who understood this waiting, this expectation of a promised Messiah, who were waiting to be rescued and delivered from oppression, and suddenly, by the Spirit of God, their eyes are opened, and they understand Jesus. Jesus is him, and it's not just about Israel being politically stable. It's about eternal hope and joy and peace, and a wonderful new community. So that's Acts 2. It's quite busy, Acts 2. Um, And then what we start to see is this, what I talked about earlier, these ripples of influence, if you like, these concentric circles of gospel power moving out from this point onwards. And in chapter 3, it starts, as Jesus said it would, in Jerusalem. That's where they are. And and I've broken this down slightly. Um, You could say that in chapter 3 we see the crowds, the general Crowds in Jerusalem are the, are the people who Peter's preaching to and they're being reached. And then in chapter 4, it's more interaction with leaders, with religious leaders, with people of power and influence. So, off on our journey to the ends of the earth. We start in Jerusalem and there's a healing miracle. Great way to start a gospel sermon. <laughs> there's a healing miracle. And uh, Peter and John are off to the temple, we're told to pray, and there's a beggar there who's been crippled all his life, 40 years, and he's asking for help. What he's asking for is money. And uh, famously, Peter says, we can't help you there, but we can help you. And in the name of Jesus, he heals the guy. Extraordinary miracle. Um, I've got a quote here from a guy called Thomas Walker. The power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. It's very obvious, but it's quite profound, actually, when we think about our own attitude as we seek God for power and for healing and for the miraculous. You know, the, the, the power is Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. Peter was there stretching out his hand, doing 
the thing, bringing Christ, bringing the power of God. And the, this chap is instantly, amazingly healed. And of course, unsurprisingly, Peter preaches a sermon on the back of that event. I think you'd be tempted to do the same. And he explains again, and he doesn't pull his punches. Peter, we've seen, has been transformed by the filling of the Spirit, and he's bold is not even the word. He's really laying it on thick. He says to the Jews, you killed God's servant. He was the one that you've been waiting for, that Yahweh sent. And do you know you've killed him? He just tells them straight. Sometimes it's good to be straight as a preacher. He says, we're witnesses of the truth of the resurrection. You can't argue with the resurrection. We're witnesses to the truth. And you've been waiting like we've been waiting for God to restore Israel, for the promises that we've known throughout the Old Testament. You've been waiting, we've been waiting, and God has always promised this. All of that has pointed to this. All of that. As those of you who have done year one, you know what I'm talking about. Um, hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit in a while, but all of the Old Testament promises from God choosing Abraham to father many nations and to be a blessing to the nations, all the way through, you know, through all the promises. Moses, the deliverance of Israel, yeah, through the miraculous uh, rescue of God. That exodus, Jesus has come, the better Moses, the better exodus, the deliverance, the freedom for all people, eternally. And as that wind came to open up the sea for Israel to escape, the wind of God has come, the breath of God has come to open up salvation to all peoples. That greater exodus the greater Moses, who is Jesus. And Peter is saying, you guys know this stuff, but you've not yet seen, you've not yet understood. You are Abraham's heirs, but not by blood, by promise. Just like we are, Paul explains in his letters, doesn't he? Just like we are heirs of Abraham's promise, and you too can be delivered. Man, I can tell you, I'm going to do this. I, this is not something I've particularly done. You, um, Often we look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul to help us pray. I think that, that that's a really good thing to do. But the sermons of the Apostle Peter, I'm going to spend a bit of time <laughs> looking at those again because they are uh, they're powerful, aren't they? So again, as I said before, I think what Peter does here is he doesn't really focus on the healing. He doesn't really focus on himself. He focuses on Jesus. Jesus. This is what you've got to get, people. And in chapter 4, what we, what we find is that there's a bit of heat. The heat is turning up here, and we've got leaders, people of influence are starting to get a bit riled by the apostles' activities. And uh, we get a little bit of trouble. The opposition starts. It's all going well so far. <laughs> it all sounds peachy. But they start to get a bit of flack. And, that, and as I said before, you know, we, we need to just... Try and immerse ourselves in the context here and remember what these people have done to their, to their Lord. What they've seen these people do to Jesus. Um, and as a result, they've run. And what happens here, we see in chapter 4, amazingly and brilliantly, is that unlike the Garden of Gethsemane, where they all leg it because they're terrified, that's not what happens here. They get opposition, fierce opposition, Dangerous opposition, people who have power to do them harm, and uh, they just don't care. They're very bold, and actually, you might say they come across as a bit arrogant. 
They're not arrogant, of course. They're just completely convinced of the gospel and they've been filled with the power of God. And in chapter 4, it says, Peter preaches, filled with the Spirit. So this, this little phrase comes up a lot. Filled with the Spirit, Peter did such and such. Filled with the Spirit, Peter. And so Peter preaches, filled with the Spirit. And despite the fact that these, the people now he is speaking to are those who have great power to lock him up and worse, he doesn't seem to care. He just goes for it. He says there's no other name under heaven. No other name under heaven by which men may be saved. You, you, you can see the transformation. We've seen it and we cannot help but speak, he says, doesn't he? We can't, we can't help ourselves. It doesn't matter what you do to us. It doesn't matter how you threaten us. We cannot help but preach Jesus. Extreme boldness. Boldness is not a big enough word, is it? It's like, I could be a bit indelicate, and ballsy, you know, really, really they're just, man, alive. I, when I read this, I, felt, I feel so challenged. I hope you do too. You know, there's this brand new baby community, the spirit-born church, it's crazy. Stuff is kicking off all over the place. And uh, they start to get noticed, and not in a good way, but they, they just keep going. And opposition leads to prayer. They pray, unsurprisingly. I think we would do the same. You feel under heat, you feel under pressure. Let's pray, let's get together and pray. But on the next slide, what you've got is a part of the prayer that they pray, and I love this. This is just a section of it from Acts 4. They gather together and pray. And listen to, uh, listen to these words. Of, it says, I think it says, I haven't got a Bible open in front of me, despite the fact I told you to, uh, that pe- they all prayed. They all prayed this. I don't think they all prayed it once together. But this is their prayer. But they're gathered together. For indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do as much as your power and your plan had decided beforehand would happen. And now, Lord, pay attention to their threats and grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage while you extend your hand to heal and to bring about miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on them all. Let's be honest, if this happened to me or you or us, I don't know, um, we might gather together to pray. I suspect we might gather together to talk about what we should do next, maybe lie low for a bit. It doesn't help anybody if Peter gets arrested. No, they get together and they pray, not for the threats to be removed, but for boldness to carry on preaching, for boldness And again, the word power comes into it. This is what we see. It's with great power, the apostles are giving testimony to the resurrection. They pray, Lord, consider their threats and just give us boldness. Just to keep going back in the face of it. Just to keep going back with the truth of the gospel. And and they know, don't they? This prayer is wonderful. They know that what has happened, all that has happened, they've understood now all that's happened through Christ's passion, through what they've witnessed, through what they've endured, was only what God allowed, only what God ordained, only what the sovereign God had in mind for the rescue of the world. They've seen it. The Spirit has enlightened them. 
and they've understood, their eyes have been opened to greater depth of what's going on. And what happens is just power. Power is breaking out all over the shop. It's exciting, isn't it? This is why my friend who I work with, some of, some of you might know Paul Brown, who I work with very closely with a guy called Paul Brown, and he's, he's an evangelist through and through, and he just gets so excited about this stuff. Acts, he's like, we, we did a preaching series on Acts quite recently, and we're going to go back to finish it off at some point. Uh, and he just can't wait. When are we going back to Acts? When are we going back to Acts? At the moment, we're enjoying Ephesians. Yeah, it's great. But anyway, um, it's, so, it's great stuff. Okay, we're going to quickly do chapter 5 before we have a break. Chapter 5 is, ooh, there's a bit of a dive that happens here. So it's exciting. There's so much going on. The apostles are taking ground and the church is thriving. And we read at the end of chapter 4, there's this generosity thing again. People are just bringing stuff, providing for the needy. It's a beautiful thing. Even selling stuff, even selling property. Think about that. Barnabas, we read at end of chapter 4, sells a field, brings the money. It's, you know, it's no big deal. It's just a mention at the end of chapter 4. Um, it's worth mentioning, of course, that you know, in God's plan, this has always been the case. So if you go right back to Deuteronomy, to the law, uh, there's provision made for the widows, orphans, foreigners to be provided for out of the tithe. In fact, I've got it here, Deuteronomy 15.4, there should be no poor among you. There's provision to look after people who, who have not. That's always God's plan for the people of God, to, to have that about them. And here we see it in this new spirit-born church. They're providing for the needy. Uh, things are going well, it's looking great. And then what we find is in chapter 5, there's a couple, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't really have time to read it, but a couple come... And they sell a piece of land, amazing, and they bring the money to Peter, which is for the, for the needs of the church. Um, but they don't bring the whole lot. Now, I imagine that it's a lot of money, right? Because it was enough money that you could think it was the whole price of the property they sold. So this is a huge, generous gift. But it's not the whole amount, and they kind of make out it is the whole amount. And Peter discerning by the Spirit's wisdom, challenges this man, Ananias, and he says, this is not, is this the full amount? And Ananias says it is, and, uh, and Peter challenges him and says, you've lied in your heart to God. And what happens is Ananias just drops down dead in front of him. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've started a church and it's going great guns and there's mass conversions and this happens, that's a bit of a, you know, that's a bit of a roadblock to the, are you feeling blessed? Right? I'm just, we preached this recently in our church and just trying to get people to think. Think about your church. Think about your people. Think about something like this happening. It's, it's devastating and terrifying. Because then his wife comes in, Sapphira, and she doesn't know what's happened. They've just taken his body out. She doesn't even know. And Peter challenges her. Is this the, is this the whole amount? And she says, yeah. And again, boom, she drops down dead. A couple in the church who've brought this massive, generous gift I've just fallen down dead under Peter's challenge. It's a bit of a downer, isn't it, in the, in the progress of what's going on. Man, F.F. Bruce says this, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, 
an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. So the story of Achan is Joshua and the people of God have just conquered this great impregnable city of Jericho. They are elated because God gave them a miraculous victory. It was a God-given victory. It wasn't a strategic military victory. You know the story. They have to march around the walls and so many times and blow the trumpets and the walls come down. And they wrote lots of Sunday school songs about it. Uh, that's happened. And then there's a, a, the next battle. is a place called A or AI, some people say. I don't know how you pronounce that very well. Um, and it should be an easy one. It's much smaller, it should be easy, God is with them, and they fail. And Joshua is a bit confused and comes to God and says, well, how has this happened? And God explains to him that somebody in the camp has sinned. Somebody amongst them has done what they were explicitly directed not to do and kept some of the spoils of war for himself. And this is the block to the victory of the people against Ai. Uh, Disobedience, deceit. Joshua says, here's the parallel, why have you brought disaster on us? The Lord will bring disaster on you today and all Israel stoned him to death. That's Achan's end. And in Acts 5, Peter says to Ananias, how have you thought up this deed in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and died and unsurprisingly great fear gripped all who heard about it. One of the um, assignment questions I've put at the end of your notes for you to take away is it's slightly provocative, but it's just to get you thinking, really. It's um, something like, why do Ananias and Sapphira die if, as Paul says in his letter to the Romans, there's no condemnation for those in Christ? It's just to get you thinking about that episode, because it's a bit shocking, and we don't all, you know, it's good to think those things through, but... Yeah, that's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a downer. So listen to this. This is a great quote from Phil Moore. Anybody read Phil Moore um, commentaries? Very good. Listen to this. The advance of the church is firmly linked to her pure and attractive witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, this new community, their pure and attractive witness is important. If Satan soils and corrupts her under a veneer of discipleship, it is game over for the church. Like a surgeon dealing with a cancerous melanoma, God gets out his scalpel and operates fast. Soon, Ananias and Sapphira are lying dead on the floor of his surgery, but the body of Christ has been spared. Ooh, so, opposition, we find, don't we? The church is advancing, things are amazing. God has poured out his spirit and there is great power, great joy, great community, and then boom, there's this opposition comes in various forms and also in chapter 5 as if that wasn't bad enough we find opposition coming from outside so we've had the the internal this couple had they had they really repented had they really know Jesus were they really filled with the spirit we don't really know that but from inside this awful thing happens and then from outside there's more there's more persecution there's more opposition they keep coming so I read about the apostles they're even they're put in prison they, keep, they just keep popping up in prison. Then they, they go again and they preach and they get in trouble and they come back again. There's a miraculous release. There's so many things happening. It's like just this one thing happened. We would write a book about it, right? We would be writing a book and we'd get a publishing deal from some Christian publisher. But there's so many things happening. A miraculous release from prison. And what do they do? 
and just go back, preaching again, boldness in preaching. Again, they're rested and they say, we can't help it, we must obey God. We must obey God, not people. He says again, God raised up Jesus whom you killed. You see the pattern? He's just telling them over and over, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. This is what you've done, but this is who Jesus is and you can repent and know him. And then right at the end of chapter 5, we meet someone called Gamaliel, who's a bit of a hero, a bit of a man of peace, you might say. And he has, he's a man, he's a leader of influence, a religious leader, but he, he counsels the Sanhedrin and says, do you know what? If this whole thing is just trumped up, it'll die. Don't worry about it. But what if it's from God? What if this really is Yahweh at work? What if, he, what if this Jesus really was the Christ? What if what these guys are doing, what if this power that we're seeing really is God at work? You don't want to find yourself fighting against God, he says. In this case, I say, stay away from these men and leave them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking originates with people, it will come to nothing. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them, or you may even be found fighting against God. I've, I've put a comment there, Gamaliel is like a manifesto for Luke. This whole story of Acts is that story, isn't it? It's like, no, this is God. He, Jesus has said to the apostles, just wait, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit has come and filled them with power. And what we see is this incredible new community of people who are full of power. That God is at work. People are being healed and saved. You can't fight this thing. God is at work. And the ripples we're going to see just keep going out and out and out as the power of the gospel goes out with people filled with the Spirit, filled with boldness, filled with uh, expectation and conviction that God is at work. Okay, shall we have a coffee break? Okay, so in chapter 5, we've just been in chapter 5, and in terms of these ripples, if you will, of the gospel power going out, how far have we got? Now, I talked about Jesus' promise that he'd be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. How far have we got so far? Sorry? So we're still in Jerusalem. Uh, and much of the further ripples I don't get to talk about. Whoever's here next month will do that from chapter 9 onwards, which is very exciting. So now here we are in chapter 6. So chapter 5 has ended, despite all the opposition and all the aggro, the travesty of what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, and then all this persecution and imprisonment. Chapter 5 ends like you might expect, with powerful gospel preaching again. So they're at it. The apostles are out there just preaching through the city. And then we find, in chapter 6, something else happens, which, if you are involved in church life, may not be a surprise to you. There's a little bit of discord within the church. There's a little bit of complaining <coughs> springs up. So we're on, we're on a roll. Things are good. We just keep preaching. We're seeing people saved and healed. 
We're seeing this beautiful community come together and then we get a little bit of aggro from within because there's a bit of niggling. I don't know about you, I've definitely experienced a little bit of that in church life. That's to do with this beautiful thing that we talked about, which is the coming together of all sorts of different people, isn't it? And it's, the, it's one of the most challenging, but one of the most beautiful and rewarding things about the church is that we can be family. So the, the Bible, I'm going off on one now, but the Bible talks a lot about household of God and family, those images of family. It's not like a business so much or a corporation. And we often kind of go down that road, don't we? Use language, corporate language like leaders and, I don't know, all sorts of things which don't really help us often to grasp what the church is because the Bible uses family analogy all the time. And when we're talking about leaders, we're talking about fathers and mothers in the church and in the household of God. It's a beautiful thing. And we're brothers and sisters not through blood or not through ethnicity, but through the spirit of God who brings us together. It's the most wonderful thing. It's one of the things I like to talk about, but I'm not here to talk about it today particularly. Um, but as a result, sometimes there are challenges. And here we've got one. We've got the Greek-speaking uh, widows apparently not being treated as well as the um, Hebraic or the, the, the Hebrew widows. So there's wonderful thing. These two communities have come together. Uh, but actually, then there's a, somebody's concerned there's not... It's not fair in the food distribution. They're looking after widows, they're giving out food, but some are getting more than others. And the thing I like about this, this is interesting to me, is that in order to deal with this problem, and you might think it's not, doesn't sound like a particularly interesting or, you know, doesn't sound like it's really worth Peter's time, the great apostle Peter, but they don't ignore it because it's important. It's important because a divided community subverts the gospel. And if you've been involved in churches where, or if you are involved in churches where these challenges exist, it is worth fighting for. Because the, the plan of God is that we are one body, one family. And when there's division, it subverts the gospel message. And people are looking. And, uh, and so what we find here is this little thing, this little issue comes up. Uh, and the, just a couple of points of interest. The apostles don't say, right, we're going to do this, you do this. They gather the church and uh, they say, well, what, what should we do about this? And in fact, they invite the church to choose people to oversee this problem. Okay, we need someone who's attending to this so it doesn't distract from the, from the work of the, the gospel preaching. Um, and prayer, actually, says the apostles are given to teaching the word and prayer. So we need other people to think about this. This is important. And so it says... The church appointed, chose these seven men who were full of the spirit and wisdom. So Stephen and Philip, who we're going to meet in a little while again, are two of them, filled with the spirit and wisdom, good, upstanding men of faith, are given the job of making sure that this issue, this issue which is causing division, is attended to properly. And if you, you could just read this, and I've heard people talk about this, it's like, well, they're just wait. it's like dealing out the waiting tables. It's not that. It's so much more than that, because if there's any sense of favouritism or, or preferring one over the other in the church, it's, uh, it's, a gr it's a grief to God. And so 
they appoint seven men, seven great men, to deal with this issue. And I like that. And the other thing I like about this is the word that is used for the ministry or the service of the apostles and the ministry or the service of these guys dealing with this food distribution issue is exactly the same word. There's no sense here that, well, the apostles are too important doing X, so you guys just need to take care of Y so we can crack on. It does explicitly say the apostles need to attend to what we're given to do, so we need other people to attend to this. But the word of ministry or service is the same word. It's, the, it, it's different tasks, it's different gifts, it's different abilities, but it's service. It's service to the church. And whether you're preaching uh, and praying, whether you're out on the streets like Peter, preaching the gospel, seeing mass conversions, or whether you're doing anything else in the service of the church because of your gifts, what God has given you, because of your abilities, because you've been, somebody's spotted that in you and, put, and called it out of you. Whatever you're doing, uh, it's service to God. And that's one of the, the, the images of the New Testament, isn't it, about the church and that body that I've spoken about, or that family. It's like people have roles and responsibilities. People have gifts. Uh, the ear, does, this is not literal, I can't remember which way around it is, but the eye doesn't say to the ear, I don't need you. you know, different gifts, all important, all vital to the full, healthy functioning of the body. And so... I like that. This is a vital ministry. We don't want to see the body of Christ divided. We don't want to see the family um, niggling at one another. We want things to be right. We want this community to represent what it's meant to, which is this beautiful coming together of all sorts of people under one Lord. And so these, these guys are appointed. Uh, deacons is the word. We won't get into theology of deacons. but um, and Stephen, it says, is one of those guys, <clears throat> is preaching and performing signs and wonders. So again, this is a man we read, explicitly full of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching the word and he's seeing signs and wonders. But as a result, he's arrested. Again, the heat is turned up and here we see Stephen. And he's accused of blasphemy. He's accused of speaking against the law of Moses and against the temple. Two central uh, pillars, if you like, of, of the Hebrew faith, the Jewish, Jewish faith. So, and he's, they, they, they accuse him of, of being blasphemous. Now, Act 7, we're going to take a little moment because this is something that maybe you've read or heard before. Um, and don't really think about, but to me, it's fascinating. So Acts 7, what we get is 52 verses of Stephen's monologue. <coughs> Stephen's defence, he explains himself and his position, and he does it for 52 verses. It's quite long. I read it out loud to myself. It took quite a long time. Um, but we are going to take a look at it. One, because you need to stay awake, you need to chat to one another um, and two, because it's interested, and I think it's instructive to us. George Bernard Shaw calls Stephen a quite intolerable young speaker and a tactless and conceited bore, uh, which is harsh, I think. Um, he does go on a bit, uh, when you, which you'll see in Act 7 in a minute. But, um, and some say it's very rambling 
uh, he just kind of goes off and doesn't really follow a course and he's just talking and what's the point? It doesn't really seem to have a purpose. Uh, but remember, he's been accused of blasphemy against the law of Moses and the temple and his defence for himself draws on these two elements. Okay. The end of the story is Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr that we know of. He's stoned to death as a result of this charge of blasphemy. Um, and what we see, actually, is uh, Luke says, I'm not quite sure how or why, but Luke says in Acts that Stephen sees, he says it, doesn't he? Stephen says, I see Jesus standing by God, standing at the right hand. And, and that's interesting as well, isn't it? He's standing, not sitting. So often we hear about Jesus sitting, seated at the right hand of the Father. But Stephen has a vision and he sees Jesus standing. And there's almost this beautiful image of Jesus standing to receive Stephen as he's martyred. But before we get to that bit, um, let's have a little chat and a little think about Stephen's defence. My point really, I hope, I hope this is clear, is that this is not a sermon I don't think that many of us would preach. Is it even a sermon? Uh, what's his point? That's really it. What's Stephen's point? Is it a sermon? Is this something that you would do? Would you do something different in this situation? And this might be easier for the preachers among you. Um, and what's his point? What's Stephen's point? Because... To many people who've written about this, it's not very clear. Like I say, George Bernard Shaw just thinks he's a rambling bore. But this is the moment in the... It's, quite a, it's a bit of a turning point in, in Acts. It's a moment where we see somebody uh, martyred. So, of course, they've all been in fear of this, I'm sure, since they've seen Jesus executed. And actually, this is the first time that for his faith and for his defence of what he is preaching, he is, he is martyred, he's killed for it. So it's a, a key moment in the biblical text and it's, uh, it's a bit of a turning point in Acts, which we'll see in a minute. But just, just have a look. Some of you will be familiar with it. I suspect some of you not at all. So take a moment. to just You probably won't want to read the whole thing, but you can skim it together and have a chat. Is that okay? You've got that. Where are we going? Great. Okay. I know it was long, 52 verses. Shall we um, just come back? And see who's got anything to say about Stephen's defence. Not about anything else. Well, we think it's very concise. Very concise. Yeah, it's the, the Holy Spirit's been constructed. It's reminding them of the history from Abraham right the way through to the, to the yes. cross. Yeah. It's the ascension. It's very, very and what we think is when they call them stiff necked people that's what they did there's <laughs> <laughs> mm. accusation at the end there is pieces of accusation absolutely um, he's called them said that yeah. you guys say that we've yeah. yeah. done things differently in the past that actually you would do the same and yeah. that kind of yes. a bit at the end where they get angry at them that's yes. kind of almost mirroring what Jesus is saying yeah Started by explaining the ancestral 
confirming and believing also the, their ancestral history. Yes. Confirming that he also believed. What two people believe, I also believe. Yes. I'm one of you, right? Yes. Then from that, he, can't, he, can't, he came and mentioned Jesus Christ. That's in Jesus Christ. We are all the same. Yes. But that's in Jesus Christ that you killed. That's in Jesus Christ that you crucified. That's in Jesus Christ is still alive. And by his power, we are still walking. Mm. Yeah, and brilliant. At the end, you now say that I saw Jesus Christ standing yeah. at the right hand of God. Yeah. And that's the blasphemy. That's the that blast. makes them really cross. Struck them. Blasphemy. Yeah. <laughs> any, any, anything else? That's pretty comprehensive. But uh, any other thoughts? The response is quite funny, but there is a man who starts shouting. Yes. Yeah, they do that thing. That, Kids do, and they don't want to hear. It. They, they, they don't want to hear it. They're absolutely uh, enraged. But yeah. Okay. I don't think so. Um, yeah, that's an idiom that. I think could be could be used in either context, but okay. obviously, yeah, yeah. what's the translation? Um, they, they were now, when they heard this, they were cooked to the quick. Okay, okay, it's interesting. And what what version is that you're That's using? The New American Standard. Okay, okay. There are lots of idioms in the NASB. That sorry. Sorry, this one says they were furious and gnashed their teeth. Gnashed their teeth, yeah. Literally hopping mad about this blasphemy. But what Stephen's done, as this lady said, and this gentleman here said, is he's, he's taken them through and he's said, no, this is, this is not a new thing. <laughs> and actually for us as Christians, sometimes we, we forget that. You know, I don't know about you, but um, I became a Christian when I was a kid. And for a long time, I had that ridiculous sort of parodied view of like the Old Testament, it's just not really relevant anymore. And uh, the New Testament's all about the gospel and the power of God and all that. That's immaturity, obviously, but um, but what Stephen's done is he said, no, this whole story is the gospel. In every page of the Bible, from the first to the last, it's the gospel, it's the good news of Jesus. From, you know, and he takes us through the patriarchs, doesn't he? He just looks at Abraham and, and, and Joseph and Jacob, and it, it's all about Jesus. They're all pointing to this day, and you can't see it. Uh, and he, yeah, I think it's a, an amazing, I love reading it, actually. If you want a potted history of, uh, of the Old Testament narrative and of God at work through, you know, threading through God's hand through the, the narrative of the history of Israel, it's, it's, it's not flawless, but it's good. Would you say that Luke included this because most of his readers might have been Gentiles and so they might not have known more of the Old Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um, I think it's. It, I think you'd include the story uh, because it's a pretty big point in the history of this new church, isn't it? The martyrdom of one of their key men, uh, and also, of course, it's the point at which Luke introduces us to Saul of Tarsus. He's got a bit part, but we read that he's there. He's there watching and holding the coats of people who are throwing the stones. Sinister. Really little, sinister little comment, isn't it, that? Um, but he's there, and he, it says he's approving of what's happening. Another thing that we read about Stephen is, uh, after his martyrdom, is that it says, um, 
um, I'm trying to think what the adjective is for the men. Something like uh, devout, that's it. Devout men buried Stephen with loud lamentation. Just a little detail that you might just skim over. Those are the things that... I I'll just stop and think about that. Devout men buried Stephen with loud lamentation. And apparently, the Jewish um, law, the Mishnah, you know, so the, the, all those extra interpretations of the Jewish law that were very familiar, actually considered public lamentation over someone who'd been stoned completely inappropriate because stoning was a cursed death. Uh, and, and even that, you think, this, this, a, this is, yes, it's steeped in the Old Testament history. Yes, it's steeped in this huge Hebrew narrative that God is working through to bring a people to himself from every tribe and nation. Yes, it's absolutely joined up to Stephen's history and through the patriarchs. But it's also totally countercultural. It's also something so incredibly radical and fresh that even little comments like this, you know, devout men buried Stephen with loud lamentation, wasn't the done thing. They shouldn't really have done it as good Jews. But this is, everything about this is countercultural, as well as totally in line you know, with, with all of that Old Testament history. Do you, get, do you understand my point? And that's the sort of thing, I don't know about you, but when it comes to theology, that's the sort of thing that just thrills me, excites me so much, to see that every page of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end makes sense. There's a, there's a resource called The Bible Project. Are you familiar with The Bible Project? We love The Bible Project, don't you? Their um, read scripture videos and all their resources are so, so helpful. And they have a little phrase that they say all the time, which we're always mimicking, which is, we believe the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus. That's the way they say it. And, uh, and, uh, and everything they do tries to draw that out. It's so, so helpful to keep reminding us. It is one unified story that points to Jesus. Everything in it, every, every patriarch you look at, He's a type, he's a shadow of, the, of the, the great one who would come and be Lord and Saviour, Jesus. And I love that, I love that about theology, I love that about biblical theology, which is nice that the way you're doing this course gives you an element of this biblical theology working through the Bible and then coming to more you know, isolated doctrines as well. I think it's nice, uh, nicely done. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why do you think Luke described it like that? Because it, uh, it sounds a bit like when Moses. I think it's a bit like Moses. I think it's meant to be, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, like when Moses comes down the mountain, and and almost like he's been accused of of blaspheming against Moses and the law of Moses, uh, and uh, it's just a little. I think there's meant to be a parallel that we'd see, and I think they would have seen it. Um, so when Moses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So all points to the hard-heartedness. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that's an accident, is it? That that that, that parallel is in view, um, and they're the sorts of parallels that we often miss. I think, but the first those there wouldn't have missed them. Yeah. Ironically, he's been a, a accused of blaspheming against the law of Moses, and um, Luke is drawing out something and saying, "Well, actually, look, he's a lot more like Moses than you realise." 
and everything. He doesn't just go, well, this is what Yeah, we're absolutely. Look how absolutely. You have yeah. It. So he uses those two points of accusation, the law of Moses and the temple, as his defense. No, but, but look, <laughs> you only have eyes to see. Look, uh, what I'm saying is not, it's not, um, it's far from blasphemous. It's the, it's the beautiful culmination of all of those promises and all of that involvement of God in the world. Yes. To, uh, to, to Stephen. Yes. He's sort of transported. At the Definitely. Um, yeah. Yes, and, and so even that wonderful um, story of Jesus meeting the two guys on the road to Emmaus, and uh, it says he opened the scriptures and explaining all the way through, he explains how they, how they point to him and and like you say, they're going back to their Bible, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, and they're looking for understanding and signs and things that point to Jesus. But then what we find here is that with the gift of the Spirit, yeah, so much revelation. He's the Spirit of revelation, isn't he? The Spirit of counsel and wisdom. And so much more understanding, so much... Paul often prays, the Apostle Paul often prays, we're doing Ephesians at the moment, like I said, that, that we would have power to know, power to understand... Often we think of power as boom, 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 signs and wonders, but Paul prays for, for, for the saints to have power through the Spirit to grasp things, to know things and to understand things, and that's a work of the Spirit in his people, isn't it? So, yeah, there's sudden, yeah, huge revelation and understanding of a different level. Can I just add? Yeah. Uh, That's nice. Thank you for that. Did you get that, everyone, that reference? Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1. Verse 1. Mm-hmm. Nice, thank you for that. Can I just say the end of it where he does get stoned? I think it's absolutely wonderful. Where he says, Lord, do not hold us against him. Mm. This sin against him, and he went to sleep, he fell asleep. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> Imagine being stoned. <laughs> Well, I think, again, we see what we've seen a little bit in Peter previously, isn't it? He, he knows he's in trouble, Stephen. And they are... He says what he gives his defence, says his peace, and they are livid. And then he just gives them a bit more to make them even more livid. He's... he's you don't want to be flippant about this, do you? But... Yeah, I mean, that's challenging, isn't it? There's such, he seems to have such peace in knowing that he's, um, uh, he's, yeah, he's doing it for his king. Uh, he's been given a, a job to do. He's just doing it knowing that he's safe and that God is there to receive him. And there are echoes there of the Lord Jesus, uh, yeah, in his death, I think, as well. So, yeah.
mentioned about the fact that Jesus was stood up when he went into heaven? Well, I, meant, I mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, I mentioned that. So, Stephen just says, doesn't he? I see him standing. And uh, we, you, know, you can surmise why you think that is. We're not told. Um, but uh, as I said, I think there's, there's possibly a sense that the Lord is standing to receive Stephen. Um, I think he was honouring him. Yeah, and I mean, incredible, just absolutely incredible. And one of the things I love about the fact that Jesus and God, you know, people get visions of God, um, Isaiah and Ezekiel, you know, God is sitting because God is, God does everything, sustains the cosmos from sitting down. Uh, I love that picture. But like you say, there's something significant here that we, and we think of Jesus and we read of Jesus seated at the right hand, it's at the side of the Father in authority uh, and in honour, but he stands. Stephen sees a vision of him standing, yeah. I think, I think it helps us to understand how Jesus is acting with us now because we sometimes read, it is finished, Jesus sat down at the right hand. Yeah, sit, okay, he's done. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we're seeing yeah. he's very much active. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he's our high priest. Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay. Great. Thank you for all your contributions. That's fantastic. Um, so, when we're talking about, at the beginning, we started talking about these ripples of Jesus promised the disciples that they would receive power to be witnesses, this is what this is all about, and the, the influence would go out from Jerusalem and just keep moving outwards. And what um, this, this little turning point in Acts, what we see is that the, the uh, detail about Stephen kind of sets up for us the next phase, if you will, because it introduces to Saul of Tarsus, who we find in uh, beginning of chapter 8 is persecuting the church. Uh, so it doesn't seem like he actually was one of the... Through one of the stones, Stephen, but effectively he did. You know, he's there in that group, um, judging and persecuting the church. And so, what we find is in, in God's plan, in God's design, great persecution against the church breaks out. And what that results in is scattering, is the church being scattered, the word is, in, in, like seed going out. And so one of the other things that we read at the beginning of chapter 8 is that wherever they went, they preached the word. They're scattered. Why? Because they've signed up to do a church plant in a sunny nation? No. They're scattered because of persecution, because of great danger. So they've left home, city, familiarity, family, we don't really know, but they've been scattered to the four winds, if you like. Why? Because they're in fear of their lives. But as a consequence, we're told, this plan of God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is extended. And wherever they went, it says they preached the word. Challenged by that? I am really challenged by that. Sometimes I can't even be bothered in Tesco to engage someone in conversation who looks friendly. I don't, you know, it's like, wow, every, 
Every opportunity is just natural. Wherever they went, they just preached the word. And what my friend Paul calls chatting the gospel. You know, preaching is not a very helpful word to us sometimes because you think of this, somebody standing with a microphone preaching. But they're basically just telling people. It's chatting the gospel. Anybody can do that. Everybody can do that. That's what we're all doing. Witnesses to Jesus. Power to be witnesses. Chatting the gospel wherever they went. And what we find is we're introduced to uh, Philip, who was one of the seven, remember, appointed to take care of that logistical issue in the church in Jerusalem with the widows. So he's scattered and he goes down to Samaria. It says he was, listen to this, those who had been forced to scatter went around proclaiming the good news of the word. And Philip went down to the main city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them. Of course he did. And crowds are listening. Why? Because of miraculous signs. So again, there's power. Yeah, there's power to perform signs and then people sit up and listen. And one of the reasons they sit up and listen is because they've been quite interested by a guy in the town um, who's a magician, and his name is Simon yeah Simon the magician is quite a well known character he does some pretty cool things it's like magic tricks signs and wonders if you like and people are they know him and, and it's interesting and exciting and intriguing and then Philip turns up with a different message and with miraculous signs and wonders and people sit up and take notice And uh, this is a beautiful phrase as well. It says, Unclean spirits crying with loud shrieks were coming out of many who were possessed, and many paralysed and lame people were healed. So the result was there was great joy in the city. There was great joy in that city. Why? Because of scattering through persecution that led Philip to turn up there and just keep doing what he did proclaiming the good news, telling people, chatting the gospel, explaining stuff to people, referring to the Old Testament scriptures and explaining how Jesus is the fulfilment of them. And people are getting healed. Paralysed people are getting healed and people are being delivered from demonic oppression. And Simon, the magician, you know this story? He he seems to become a Christian. He gets converted. He's convinced by the gospel. His eyes are open to see... uh, the, the real way and, uh, and then when he sees that when Peter and John come to Samaria to place their hands on the Samaritans and they are filled with the spirit Simon thinks this is great this is incredible you, you guys just do, you do that you put your hands on people and power comes he's like I'd like to do that how much does it cost to, <laughs> to, to get that gift you know can um, it, I, I think it's a little harsh. He gets a bit of a, a bad press, Simon. I feel a little bit sympathetic to him. Um, he, I guess he just, he didn't know. He's like, I want, to, I want to be part of this. This looks amazing. What do I have to do? Can I pay? And he gets quite a stern rebuke, doesn't he? Uh, Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could acquire God's gift with money. Your heart is not right. Repent of the wickedness and pray to the Lord. I think that's good advice. 
It invites him to repent and seek God. So this is what's happening. This is, imagine the scene. There's this city, uh, there's great joy bubbling up, and I guess there's people going and telling their friends and neighbours, you know what's going on, these guys have come to town and these incredible things are happening. Uh, they're talking about the Christ, the Messiah, they've seen him, this is what's happened. And people are getting healed, incredible miracles. And the gospel is doing that thing that Jesus said it would do through Judea and Samaria on its way to the ends of the earth. Simon's a little interlude, Simon the magician, bless him. We don't know what happens to him in the end. Hopefully it all comes good. I'm sure if uh, he takes Peter's advice, repents and seeks God, all will be well. And they carry on preaching. We're going to come back to the thing about the Samaritans receiving the Spirit, so don't worry about that. I haven't forgotten. But then we meet... uh, Oh, then we meet the Ethiopians, so the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this is, a, this is a brilliant passage for preaching about the Word and the Spirit, about the power of the Word of God and the Spirit, because what happens in this story is uh, Philip is told by the Spirit of God, he hears God speak to him, says, uh, go to that road. Actually, says the angel of the Lord, but God speaks to him. Get up and go down to that road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert road. You might think, great, thanks. Go sit on a desert road. But he just goes. Doesn't ask why or what's going to happen or where am I going on the desert road. He just goes under the direction of the Spirit. And lo and behold, something happens. Along comes a a chariot. There's an Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot. And Philip hears him. If I keep saying Peter instead of Philip, forgive me. Yeah, it's Philip. Um... Philip hears him reading aloud from the prophet Isaiah, from the Hebrew scriptures. Now that, to me, is a gift, right? Does that ever happen to you? Are you ever out and you hear someone reading Isaiah? You say, oh, great, I'll go and talk to them. No. Actually, you, I don't know about you, but on the, in London on the tube, you see loads of people reading the Bible, but um, not out loud, that's not the done thing to do. So the Spirit says to Philip, go over. I mean, I don't know if you needed telling that at that point. It's just that you're going to go and talk to the guy, right? He's reading Isaiah. And so he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And uh, the Ethiopian says, well, no, how can I? Unless someone explains it. Again, it's like, a, it's like the evangelism gift. This has never happened to me in this way. I don't know about you. How in the world can I understand unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up. And he reads, the passage he's reading is Isaiah 53, which is an explicit prophetic passage, a foretelling through the pen of Isaiah, a foretelling of the Lord Jesus himself. And this is the passage he was reading. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. He did not open his mouth. His life was taken away from the earth. So the eunuch says, who's the prophet talking about? So beginning with the scripture, he proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. What we have here then is a conversion. The Ethiopian eunuch turns to Christ. He's baptized there and then. There's some water. So the eunuch himself says, well, can I just not be baptized? You have people in your church who are reticent to get baptised. It takes a long time, for, sometimes for good reasons. But here we just have an instant, yep, faith and baptism. There he, there he is. And um, 
And the thing I love about this is that the, Philip is listening to the Spirit of God. He says, go down to the desert road. He goes. He hears the guy coming along reading. The Spirit says, go and talk to him. He goes. Then what he does is he knows the Scripture. He understands the Scripture so he can talk to this guy and explain to him the truth. And that gives him the opportunity to respond, put his faith in Christ and get baptised. And I think it's a challenge to us, and I know that's why you're all here, which is great, is that we need, we need and our people need to know the scripture. We need to know the word. If, if anybody out there is saying, uh, who can explain to me what Isaiah 53 means, we need to be able to do that. We need to be ready to do it, and we need to be teaching and equipping our people to do it, don't we? Um, the equivalent of that is maybe just is other things, right? Because that's probably not our experience much of the time. But there is so much spiritual nonsense out there on every social media platform you can think of, right? So I have a 15-year-old daughter who's here, so I'm fully conversant with the world of uh, Instagram and Snapchat and all of that. But there is so much nonsense that dresses itself up in spirituality. And, our, and people around us are just taking this stuff in the whole time. You know, they follow a celebrity because they like what she wears, and then she starts talking about crystals and all of this. And it, you know, people just taking in, and, and unwittingly a lot of the time, just taking in stuff that they don't understand. I tell you, there's so much nonsense out there. And we, we just had a conversation about this earlier. This nation that we live in now is what you might call a post-Christian nation. People are, do, are not conversant with the gospel. People don't have an understanding of Christianity. And so if we are not equipped, one, by listening to the Spirit of God, but two, by knowing the word, then we're not actually in a position to help them. We're not actually in a position that Philip was to say, yep, I'm here for you. Here's what it is. And give him that opportunity to respond to the gospel. Um, because I don't know about you, but I would love to have some experiences like this, yes. where I'm just able to say, yeah, here's what the Bible says, here's why it's important, here's what you need to do about it, and there's an offer of this wonderful new life, forgiveness, joy, and peace for you by the Spirit of God. I, I, I would love more opportunities to do that. And uh, like I said earlier, the challenge often, I think, is to take what that Thomas Walker said about that miracle with the crippled beggar, the power is Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. You know, we need to be ready. We need to be ready to use our hands and our brains and our mouths to point people in the right direction, don't we? Somebody asked Heather who wrote the Bible. Well, you know, you don't have to know. Let me just qualify this because I don't have any qualifications in theology or biblical studies or anything like that. Um, and you don't need to have that to be able to talk to people about the truth, right? You don't need to know, you don't need to read lots of books, you don't need to have great understanding, you don't need to be an intellectual or an academic. What you need to know is what the Bible says about Jesus and why it's important. You need to be able to help people. You need to point people towards Jesus. And very often, that doesn't take very much. 
very often that doesn't take very much because people, we know that without Jesus people are lost. I'm preaching now, not teaching, sorry. We know that without Jesus people are lost and that they need to be found. And so we need to be ready. You need to be ready. Philip was ready, wasn't he? Just ready. He's like, here, Lord, I'm ready. And here's the thing for today. Here's the thing for today. You're in this place. I want you here for a reason. We were talking earlier about the state of our nation and the world and the Western world and the way it doesn't, you know, it's very sceptical about God. Um, and I've, I've got a friend who says a lot of the times, but it's no accident that you're here now. It's no accident that we are here in this nation at this time, born, if you like, a very spiritual phrase, for such a time as this, as Mordecai says to Queen Esther, Maybe you were born for such a time of this. Well, the truth is we were born for such a time of this because God has put us here and now. And no matter how post-Christian or sceptical your neighbours and friends and colleagues are, you are here, here and now, because God wants you here, here and now. And your hands and feet and your mouth is the thing he's going to use. Like Philip, we need to be ready. Amen? Amen. Good. And uh, our, our section for today ends with a bit of teleportation, which is always good <laughs> in a story, isn't it? I don't, know that it? I don't know that it was teleportation or not, but what I'm referring to, for those of you who don't know, is right at the end of chapter 8, it says, they ba- Philip baptises the Ethiopian, and then he was whisked away, and the Ethiopian saw him no more. So either... The Spirit of God literally whisked him away and put him down in a place called Azotus, because that's where he next turns up. He says he found himself in Azotus. I'm not sceptical that the Spirit of God could do that. It might be an idiom, just a phrase, a, you know, a use of speech that says, and, and then suddenly God told him to go to Azotus. I don't really know. Teleportation's quite fun, isn't it? We, we'll, um, why, should the, why should the sci-fi nerds have all the fun? I don't know. Somebody find out how far Azotus was from the Gaza Road. I don't know. Somebody look it up. Good question. I don't know. Um, before we move on, then, uh, just before we move on, just quickly, our next break's at 11.15. Is that right? No, it's not. It is. Okay, thanks. I've got it written down, but I knew I'd forget. Um, so you know we talked about keep coming back to this pattern through acts of the ripples of the gospel you know Jesus saying this is what's going to happen you're going to go from here to here to here to here with power we've got to this point now we've come as far as Samaria uh, and people have been converted and received the spirit's power And then this little bit ends with the Ethiopian. And Ethiopia, I suspect for, I think, I'm right in saying that for, in this place and at this time, Ethiopia would have seemed pretty much the ends of the earth and exotic, far-flung place. Um, And so there's a little hint of that, that, that beginning, that sort of impetus, the momentum to going to the ends of the earth. This Ethiopian eunuch has come as um, uh, an attendant to Queen Candace of Ethiopia, but he'll be going back, right? He'll be going back to Ethiopia. Uh, So he's taking, hopefully, what Philip has done for him, he's ready to do for others who ask. Was he Jewish? So that's that's where I'm coming to that. Was he Jewish, uh, somebody says? 
25 miles, okay? So, there you go. Philip was in, he was on the Gaza Road, then he was in Azotus. There. Don't know how he got there and whether it was a supernatural act of God, but... Was he Jewish, the Ethiopian? So, <clears throat> some, some say, yes, he was a Gentile. Uh, sorry, some say, no, he wasn't Jewish, he was a Gentile. But I, th- I, I think, and it's not, in some ways it's not that important, but I think probably because of what happens in Acts 10 with Cornelius, I think the point Luke makes about Cornelius is that he is the first Gentile. obvious Gentile convert so what happens in Acts 10, which is next time's uh, bit, is that Peter has a vision. Remember, God shows him a vision of animals of all sorts and says, get up, Peter, and eat, metaphorically, in a vision. And he says, no, because many of those animals are unclean for Jews to eat, so I'm not going to do that. And at the same time, God speaks to a man called Cornelius, and says, there's a guy called Peter staying at Simon the Tanner's house, you need to go and get him. So those two things are happening in Acts 10, um, and God speaks to Peter through the vision of the, of the animals, and he says, don't call anything unclean that I call clean. So something is changing again, like I say, there's continuity from the old, but there's total countercultural new thing going on. It's a... a and so what happens then in that scenario in Acts 10 is Peter goes with the messenger to Cornelius and he explains to Cornelius and attended whoever, you know, broad, wider family and whoever. Household would have included slaves and wider family probably and all the rest of it. So he explains uh, the gospel, the truth of what's happened to Cornelius. And as he's speaking, it says, now God is so good because Peter doesn't have to make the leap in his mind to pray for Cornelius or lay his hands on him to receive the spirit. Because that, I'm not sure he maybe even got there yet. But as he's speaking, it says, the spirit came on Cornelius, right? At which point Peter's like, whoa, this is what this is about. Don't call anything unclean that God says is clean. This is a bigger thing than just the Jews. Uh, And so I think because of the deal that's made of Cornelius in Acts 10, I think we can assume the Ethiopian eunuch is... uh, is a Jew, a convert to Judaism or a, um, a Jew of the diaspora, yeah. But we don't know that, but I think that makes sense. Do you think that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So would that mean that it's more Ethiopian Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jews are, Jews are spread, yeah, absolutely. Uh, not just in Jerusalem, obviously, or not just in the, but scattered all over, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely, of course, yeah, yeah. So whether he was a, a Jew by birth or whether he was a convert to Judaism, or we don't, we don't know, but either way. Well, a good, yeah, true, uh, you said that to me last night, didn't you? <laughs> My daughter said that to me, like, why is he reading Isaiah if he's not a Jew? Well... It's a good question. Maybe somebody gave it to him to read, and maybe, but he, I think he was a Jew, so yeah, as I say. And in some sense, it doesn't really matter uh, who was the first Gentile convert. What matters is we see this pattern, yeah, these ripples. On it goes, and on it goes further and further and further until today we see however many, who knows how many Christians there are in the world today? A lot. Very good. <laughs> And there's a mate, and there's a mate, not enough.
good answer. Yeah. And there's this amazing fact that today there's so many stories, aren't there, again at the moment coming out of China. Huge multiplication of believers. Amazing. You know, a bit like reading the Acts of the Apostles, some of the things that are happening in our world today. And so, yeah, the ripples carry on. Um, not, not, as you say, not enough. And there are still parts of the world that, where the gospel's not reached. And so this prophetic promise, if you like, of Jesus from right where we started at Acts 1.8, it's not over, is it? Because the ripples are still going and there are still people groups in the world who have not yet been reached with the gospel and there are still many organisations and churches that have that goal to keep taking, taking the gospel, to keep translating the Bible into more and more languages, to keep reaching. Even in Catalyst, which is the group of churches that uh, Christchurch Manchester are part of and, and my church, City Hope Church, are part of, there's, a, there's a, always been at the centre of, of the, what we come from, this desire to plant churches in places where there are not churches or to take the gospel to people, groups and languages that have not yet heard it. The ripples are carrying on. Jesus said we go to the ends of the earth and we are still going and uh, the job is not over yet. It doesn't end uh, at the end of Acts 28. You know, and, and this is the age of the church which we see starting in this book of the Acts of the Apostles and carrying on. And here we are today, still carrying on, still explaining to people the truth about Jesus and how he fulfills every promise of the Old Testament. All of these things, hopefully being ready like Philip to pounce on anyone who needs it, explaining. Yeah? Good. Well, that, that seems like a good time to break. And when we come back, uh, we will move into the next session on the Holy Spirit.